remain standing for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading from Acts chapter 17. I encourage you to uh, follow along. I'll give you a moment to get out your phone or your tablet, or if you don't have a Bible, you may be able to find one in a chair next to you, uh, underneath you or something. Uh, This is Paul. Um, He's in Athens, and he's waiting for his colleagues to meet him, and the Apostle Paul can't sit still, so he starts meeting and preaching and sharing the gospel. Starting at verse 22, reading all the way through the end of the chapter, uh, Hear the word of the one true holy God. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown? This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we move, live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that divine beings are like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all, of, to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. Thanks, Tim. In 1843, nine individuals came to Wisconsin and planted a church in this village. Now, just for a little bit of historical context, I I think sometimes we forget how long ago that is. Um, During that year, one of our most forgettable presidents, John Tyler, was our 10th president. Um, Also, during the end of that year, during December, is when Charles Dickens first published a Christmas carol. That's a long time ago, isn't it? Many years have passed since then, bringing many changes in this church, this village, and our world. But as a church, we remain committed to preserving and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as Grace Hill Church prepares to move forward in this this new season in the life of our church, we want to pause and reflect on our past, 
not as a local church only, in the 100 years, 180 years of God's faithfulness to generations of Christians living here in Merton, we want to look beyond Merton and reflect on God's great kindness to preserve his universal church for over 2,000 years. We want to actually consider our past as we position ourselves for the future. Now, one way that we are going about this task is by working through the Apostles' Creed during the first 13 weeks of this year. The Apostles' Creed is the oldest creed of the church. It was not written by the apostles. It was not created by a council. Though brief and not containing all that genuine Christians must believe, the, the creed is still rich in content. The creed highlights the Trinity, creation, God's incarnation, humiliation and exaltation, the Holy Spirit, and the church. All Christians believe more than what is contained in this creed, but none can believe less. Creeds summarize the Christian faith. While nothing replaces the Bible, historical creeds provide concise summaries of its teachings, helping us to understand key aspects of the faith. Now, as we have just done, the, the act of reciting the Apostle Creed does not save. What holds eternal significance is embracing the profound truths found in the Bible, which are then succinctly captured in this creed. Now, last week, Lucas taught uh, from John 19 that Jesus suffered for our comfort, Jesus died so we can live, and then Jesus descended so that we will rise, as he worked through the phrase of the creed, he suffered, crucified, he, he was suffered, he suffered, crucified, died, and buried. He descended. Today, we're going to focus on the next phrase, which is, on the third day, he rose again. But before we get into that, let's, let's pray for our time. Dear Lord, we just, uh, we pray for this time of studying your word. I pray that we would um, just glean much from this time. I pray that you be with, with me as I don't, I feel weak. But in my weakness, I think, Lord, you are going to give strength. And, and, and when we approach your word, um, we, we must do that with seriousness. And I just pray that um, this would be a time that would be edifying to these individuals hearing, that we would glorify you in all that we say and do during this time. In your name, amen. Now, for some reason, we as parents sometimes like to promote irrational beliefs in the minds of our children. Now, I'm going to use some code language here in case there are some that are still trying to perpetuate some of these myths, but um, there are things like a rotund, bearded man wearing crimson. There's a hoppity animal that's in springtime. Or there's the, one of the more creepy ones is the tiny winged lady that sneaks into a sleeping child's room at night to trade a tooth for a quarter or a dollar or ten bucks, whatever inflation says it should be these days. But adults, for some reason, want, for a while, kids to believe in things that do not make any sense. But when a person is old enough to know better, they're also supposed to throw off those goofy ideas, correct? We should all nod our heads. Otherwise... It's kind of crazy. Now, resurrection does not make sense. It could be described as irrational. We get the concept of death. 
It surrounds us. Death is everywhere. It is certain, along with taxes. Resurrection is not something we see in our daily lives. The idea of resurrection seems ridiculous to the logical mind. Now, Athens, as, as Tim just read, was, um, at that time was the center of learning in, in the ancient world. The writings of the great Greek philosophers are still read and studied today because of their massive effects on modern thought in social and political fields. I had the great distinct pleasure as a college student many, many moons ago to read Aristotle and Socrates and yes, they're still read. And as Tim read a few minutes ago from Acts 17, the Apostle Paul spoke to this learned and religious group and introduced them to the one true God of the universe. At the crescendo of his presentation, Paul describes the man, Jesus, whom God has appointed and then given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And that is where he lost some of his hearers. And they didn't just walk away quietly, they mocked him. The idea of a resurrection of the dead was ridiculous to them. It didn't make sense. It, it doesn't make sense. But instead of trying to figure out if some, someone rising from the dead is rational, let's instead try to figure out if it did happen. Let's search the scriptures to see if resurrection is something that doesn't happen until it did. Then after we investigate the resurrection of Jesus, that if the resurrection of Jesus took place, we'll investigate why the resurrection is so important to the Christian faith. So those are two, our two tasks today. Did it happen? And why is it so important? Now many years ago, I was summoned for jury duty. It was my first time, and I was kind of excited for this new experience. Now during the... One second here. During the, during the jury questioning time, the attorneys made a large point of asking this question. If there is a case with no physical, photographic, or video evidence, could you be able to convict or hold conviction based solely on testimony? So could I believe something based completely on someone telling me that it happened and then act upon that information? I said I could and I was put on that jury. Once the trial commenced, we were given testimony from just three people whose stories were all over the place, details that did not line up, and overall the individuals were hard to believe. Then the, we were, as a jury, sent to a room and we were told to figure it out. It was not fun, and I was wrong to be excited about this experience. <laughs> now, is that the case with the resurrection? We are now over 2,000 years from the event. There is no physical evidence. There are no photos of the risen Lord or security camera footage from the tomb. There is no DNA evidence. All we have is the testimony of people who were there. Can those people be believed? Is there enough evidence for the modern mind to with certainty say, on the third day, he rose again? Now the creed here, once again, throws in a small but important detail. On the third day. This was the third day from when Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. This small detail of the third day once again links the phrase with an actual event, an actual date in history that happened. On that precise day in Jerusalem, the capital of Palestine, Jesus came alive and vacated the rock tomb, and death was conquered for all time. But let's go back to the questions I asked a bit ago. Can we believe the testimony of the people who were present on that historic date? 
Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And I know Tony started the, the service with this, and I appreciate that. Let's, let's read um, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you, were, you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I, for I delivered to you as first importance what I, have received, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So in, in verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul is pleading with the Corinthians, Corinthian believers to hold fast to the gospel, to the word that he had preached to them. In verses 3 and 4, he gives a simple, abbreviated retelling of the gospel. And then in verses 5 through 8, he gives evidences for the resurrection. He starts with the, the testimony of the, that the risen Savior appeared to Cephas or, or Peter. And then he appeared to the disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 followers, many of whom are still alive. Most scholars believe that 1 Corinthians was written uh, around the time of 53 to 54 AD, which would mean that would be about 20 years after the event of the resurrection. So it is very possible that many eyewitnesses to the resurrected Lord were still alive. Then in verse 7, the text mentions that Jesus appeared to James. And this is rather significant. Uh, one commentator writes about this mention of James. The James mentioned here is most likely the half-brother of Jesus, who was the oldest remaining son of the family that grew up in Nazareth. John tells us that Christ's brothers did not believe Jesus was, was the Messiah. It must have been difficult to see Jesus was the Messiah because these brothers were so close to him. While they must have seen him as an exceptional person, they played games together, did chores together, played pranks on him or whatever, it took some tall convincing for them to believe that he was the Son of God, the creator of the universe. None of Christ's brothers were truly converted until after the resurrection. That is when they became convinced Jesus was the Son of God. James must have had a fantastic conversion. And in the epistle of James, he calls Christ our glorious Lord. The resurrected Christ changed a skeptical blood brother to a believing, dynamic spiritual leader. Then in verse 8, uh, Paul gives testimony of, of his own, of seeing the risen Lord on the road to Damascus on the day of his miraculous conversion. So in this passage, the apostle makes quite an argument for, for the validity of the resurrection of Christ. But this is, this is not all the evidence we have. There is, there is much more. Now, all four Gospels have recorded accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. The main message is the same in all four Gospels, that Jesus was raised from the dead, but the details that are shared by each author vary. For some, that is problematic. I would say that it would be, um, I would say that if there was complete agreement between all the authors on all the details, that would be problematic. 
Complete agreement would suggest coordination, but slight differences of detail suggest what happens all the time in real life. If there is a bad car accident with many witnesses, there will always be slight differences when each person recounts the events. Uh, we think what we see is very reliable. It's actually not. We, we tend to file different things away differently and, and we remember things differently. Um, the gospel writers wrote for different audiences and with different purposes, which then influences the details that were shared. So instead of saying that the writers contradict each other, they actually complement each other. And for sake of time, we cannot work through all four gospel accounts, but let's look at two briefly. First, turn back to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. Luke 24, and let's um, actually start in verse 1. Now, uh, before we start reading this, Luke was not an eyewitness to the resurrection, but, but instead came later, and his intention of writing this gospel, this book, was to provide certainty of the, of the apostles' teaching. He interviewed many eyewitnesses and provided much more detail on many events of Jesus' life, including res the resurrection. But let's read verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by in dazzling apparel. As they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of, Ga Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And he remembered his words and returned from the tomb. Uh, re returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mo Mary the mother of James and the other women with, with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now this account mirrors the main details of each gospel account, that the women went to the tomb, were then told by angels that Jesus was not there because he had risen. They went back to announce this to the disciples. The disciples did not believe them. And then Peter and others went to investigate. Now later in this chapter, Jesus then tells us um, how, and we're not going to read it, but verses 13 through uh, 35 is the, the Jesus appearing as a, the, the risen Savior to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. Um, and then we see um, throughout this account that Jesus uh, was, with his, was with his followers, was speaking with his followers, and then we even see him eating with his followers later in this chapter of Luke chapter 24. Now, let's turn over to John chapter 20. John 20. Once again, let's start reading in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. 
So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were running toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must, be, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So once again, we see agreement on the main details, but then we see a few details that John remembered and then shared differently. One, in that he was faster than Peter. That was one thing that was pretty clear in a couple spots. He was a better runner. But then in verse 24, we see this fascinating interaction between Jesus and Thomas. What is Thomas known as? You can say it out loud. Doubting. But let's read this. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The former doubter, Thomas, declared powerfully, my Lord and my God. It seems like Jesus is talking to maybe more people than just Thomas when he said, do not disbelieve, but believe. Because then he says uh, later that those who believe without seeing are blessed. So if you're sitting here today, believing in the resurrection of Jesus, you are blessed. Um, there There is much more in the Gospels about the resurrection that we could go to for additional testimony of this historical event. But I would like to just briefly mention a couple things about what then his followers did with this great news of the resurrection. So, so in, in a couple of months, we'll start into a study of, of the book of Acts. What we'll see over and over and over is that the cross and the resurrection become the central themes of the apostolic teaching in the early church. The, the epistles then expand upon, uh, upon uh, the great theological implication of the resurrection. These uneducated men became bold teachers about the risen Lord, and many of them faced death because of their faith in their living Lord. So, is there sufficient testimony about the resurrection resurrection of Jesus in Scripture? Yes, I would say there is an abundance. Are are these eyewitnesses convincing and believable? Yes, their, their lives were turned upside down in a glorious way because of this event. But more than that, the Spirit gives us eyes to see and ears to hear the words of Scripture. The Spirit gives us faith to believe the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. When we think back to Athens, 
There were many who did not believe the resurrection of Jesus and then mocked Paul. But there were also some who wanted to hear more and did believe because of the bold declaration of the gospel and we think is evident is the spirit working in them to bring about faith and belief. We can assume that Paul told them much more about Christ. And maybe what he told them there in Athens was also what he shared in 1 Corinthians 15. But strong evidence can never replace the drawing work of the Spirit. So many times the process of seeking strong evidence for the Christian faith and making strong logical arguments in favor of belief in God is something that the Spirit will then use to draw people to a a faith in, in Christ. So we need to have answers for the questions that people will have, but the Spirit must work to make the message of the gospel come alive to them. We know that coming to faith in Christ is an intellectual and a spiritual process. And the Spirit is what helps us believe, even things that are hard to believe. Now, why is the resurrection so important? Is it important? I guess that's a, that's a question. We learned last week about the death of Christ. We could say, well, Jesus' uh, blood pays our, the payment for our sin. So I guess the resurrection is kind of optional, right? Well, let's, let's see what the Bible says. Um, actually, t- uh, Tony read some of this earlier in the, the service. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I heard some grumbling up front, Tim. If I did say that, you could come up here and drag me out of here and tar and feather me. Because that is... Not what the Bible says, actually. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has, then, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Then look at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Now, Paul does not mince words here, does he? He doesn't say this is an optional doctrine. The the resurrection of Jesus is vital to our salvation. But let's look at three reasons why today the resurrection is so important for us as believers in Christ. First, through the resurrection, Christians find justification. Now, what is justification? What's the definition you've always heard? Just as if I've never sinned, right? Well, there's a bit to it more. There's a bit more to it than that. Uh, this is how Wayne Grudem defines justification. Justification is a an instantaneous legal act of God, in which He thinks of our sins as forgiven, and then Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and then declares us to be righteous in His sight. Now we're going to do a lot of flipping here, so get your fingers ready. Go back to Romans chapter 4. Romans 4, and we're going to look at verse 22. Now, just to give you a little bit of context, in this chapter, Paul is arguing that Abraham and his descendants received justification not through obedience to the law, but because of faith in God. And this is how he then ends this chapter. Um, Verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours only. 
It was counted to us who believe in him, who, to, who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, it was God's declaration of Christ's work of redemption. Because Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, that's from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, God has highly exalted him. By raising Jesus from the dead, God the Father gave his stamp of approval on Christ's death for our sins. Christ's work was completed, and he no longer had any need to remain dead. Referencing uh, Wayne Grudem again, he says, There was no penalty left to pay for sin, no more wrath for God to bear, no more guilt or liability to punishment. All has been completely paid for, and no guilt remained. In the resurrection, God was saying to Christ, I approve of what you have done, and you have found favor in my sight. The resurrection provides ultimate proof that the atonement that Jesus made was fully accepted by the Father. So Jesus' resurrection ensures our regeneration, or our, our, our justification, but secondly, it also ensures our regeneration. Now let's turn back to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that is what regeneration is. It is the imparting of a new spiritual life for a believer. We believe that this new life, we, leave, we receive this new life because of the resurrection. Um, and, and when we talk about a living hope, I think sometimes we, we cheapen words like hope. This is not a, I hope I get a Lamborghini in the next five years. That's not, that doesn't make sense. But when we say a hope, a living hope, because of what Christ has, has accomplished through the resurrection, that is a certainty of something that will come. Uh, let's turn back to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. Regeneration is a new birth. It's a new life. Let's look at verses 1 through 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in our sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So, because of the resurrection, Christians have the same new quality of life that Jesus had, which allows for fellowship and obedience with God forever. Now, there is definitely a already but not yet aspect of this. We still inhabit our same bodies, which are subject to weakness, aging, and death. 
But as Ephesians 2, 5, and 6 says, God has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Christians are far from perfection. I am case study number one. But sin no longer has dominion in my life. This resurrection power transforms the life of a Christian into greater conformity with Christ. And this resurrection power then also gives Christ's followers the, believe, the ability through the Spirit to, the, to do the work of the ministry to expand the kingdom of God. And last, third, Christ's resurrection ensures that Christians will receive perfect resurrection bodies as well. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Start reading verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man he also has also come the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when Christ returns and raises from the dead the bodies of the believers for all, from all time who have died and then reunites them with their souls and changes the bodies of believers who remain alive, thereby thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. As Colossians 1.18 says, Christ is firstborn from the dead. Because of his conquering of death, all his people will also be raised with Christ in a very real way. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, it says in verses 20 and 23 that Christ's resurrection is the first fruits, which guarantees that there is more to come. In Adam, we inherit death, but in Christ, we inherit life. Because of this awesome reality, all those who, believe, who, all those who belong to Christ are now a new kind of people that have the assurance that they will also be raised from the dead. Now look over at verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. What shall not, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on the immortality. 
when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory for, through our Lord Jesus Christ. The empty tomb signifies to the believer that our sins have been fully forgiven, that death no longer has dominion over us, and that we will have life everlasting with our Savior. Because of this, believers long for the day when we'll experience the full consummation of this glorious truth that was begun when, on the third day, he rose again. My prayer is that you can confess that this great truth, that great truth with me today, that on the third day, he rose again. We see from Scripture, uh, from the pages of the Bible, the numerous testimonies from eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. We must say with certainty that Jesus rose again. This is a historical fact. Just because resurrection doesn't make sense, doesn't make it untrue. Also, we learned three reasons why the resurrection is so important to the Christian. Through the resurrection, Christians find justification. It ensures our regeneration. And Christ's resurrection ensures that Christians will receive perfect resurrection bodies. These truths should give us the great desire to sing praise to God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, which is what we'll do right after I pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time that we've had to focus on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus and the great implications that has for each of us as believers. Lord, we, we thank you that you do things that don't make sense, that don't seem possible to us. But you are outside of the laws of nature and time and and you are awesome and you have showed your awesome power in this great way that you have raised your son lord i pray that uh, even in a time of our world where we or many say that there is no truth that we would cling to the truth of your word and that we would celebrate the resurrection of Jesus today. We pray these things in your name. Amen.